Hello and welcome back to the Trojansports.com podcast. I am your sometime host, Adam Maya, and uh, back in the car, as you can probably hear in the background, making the sad drive from Austin, Texas to Houston with Ryan Young, who's doing the driving. We're exhausted, you're exasperated, uh, what a long weekend in so many regards, uh, even all these hours later I still can't compromise or comprehend <laughs> or compromise what, what happened last night, uh, obviously it was so far off in my prediction, uh, but the strange thing is that what I saw in the first quarter was exactly what I expected. What I don't understand is how it changed so much, so quickly, and they just could never turn it around. So we have a lot to discuss about the game, about Adam had a great column today that he'll get into, but there's there's plenty to cover right now. Yeah, no one predicted that. No one, I mean, the most ardent Tom Herman supporter, which Ryan is not, <laughs> I, couldn't have predicted that. Really, I mean, I know Texas was favored. Even that, a lot of people thought was kind of weird, given how they looked in their first two games. You figured it would be a tight game, and if anyone was going to pull away, it would be USC. I never really thought Texas could win big, uh, but it's always about the how. And for USC to build that early league and then be outscored 34-0 after the first quarter, we really haven't even seen that. I mean, other than Alabama, that, that did happen there, and that's Alabama. And that was game one of the Clay Hilton era. And it kind of feels like USC is in a very similar spot to it was to where it was then, and of course they don't have their ace of spades to play. They, they, they can't change quarterbacks to Sam Darnold, and, and that can imply that that JT is the reason why they're one and Max Brown wasn't either, but there was an upgrade to be made there. They, there isn't one here. So, that's kind of what I wrote about, is where they can upgrade things. And I think it's got to come first from the coaches. I think it begins there. Uh, Now, a lot of people probably say it needs to be the coaches that are upgraded. And that might be true. But that's not going to happen this week. Therefore... I try to take a more reasonable approach with this is what they're going to have to do because they're, that's their jobs right now. Their jobs are to coach the team. Uh, but my, my biggest takeaway right now from what happened both last night and what's happening this season 
and it's something that's probably been lurking for a while, uh, I think throughout last year as well, is why are so many players underachieving? Why aren't we seeing players reach their potential, improve, be more consistent? And last night was probably the most alarming example because I'm watching Amon Ross St. Brown, who, for all intents and purposes, joined the team in August. That's when he first had a practice as a USC Trojan, a little over a month ago. He got there basically when you got there, Ryan. Yep. And he's the best player on the team. And he's not a transfer, he's not a grad transfer. He's an 18-year-old receiver. And he's the best player on the team. And he's awesome, so <laughs> it's great how, how great he is. That's great for USC. But it's bad that there's really no one else that's playing uh, at the level that he's playing at on either side of the ball. There, there are some players on defense that are playing well. I'll say that. But none are playing as well as him. And really no one on offense playing uh, anywhere near him. So it, I, I think you look at the players, you look at the coaches, it's everyone, but we're not going to just sit here and and put it all on the coaches. But I think it does start with them, and it, and the change has to come from them. Yeah, I want to talk more about your column and what you think has to happen moving forward. But let's just go back to last night. And if you heard the podcast last week, you heard that you heard me and Brady McCullough, the LA Times, talk about road environments, and he had been to Texas a few times before and was not impressed with um, that stadium as an imposing place to play. I thought it was pretty impressive last night, and it's worth noting that it was a record crowd. It was 103,000 people announced attendance, record crowd for that stadium. They really came out for this primetime game. I, I'm sure sensing that it was a pivotal moment for their program, as it is and was for Clay Helton and his and his. Uh, tenure with this program so it was a great environment uh said where even said after the game that yeah maybe it got to them a little bit but still when that game started they were the team i thought they were going to be the offense was coming out of its shell texas was the team i thought it was uh very beatable through the air jt was attacking through the intermediate passing game with ease Stephen Carr runs right through the defense for a 23-yard touchdown, a defense that was giving up 160 rushing yards a game. Everything was going right as I would have expected having seen both teams play this year. And then it just turned, and it never came back. They couldn't stop the bleeding. It just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And there wasn't one thing you could point to the inexplicable punting woes that continue. Well, I mean, yeah, USC was really bad at everything, everything. Uh, for for an entire half or three quarters. Everything. Uh, now, the one point I want to make that we're going to get back into is I've seen, and I feel like I'm on the same pulp that I was last week, I've seen a lot of people 
coming down on JT Daniels. And I'm going to flip it a little bit. You, they're asking him to do everything. Everything. They had negative five rushing yards when you factor in the lo- yards lost from sacks. But really, after Carr's 23-yard touchdown run, they got nothing on the ground. You cannot ask any quarterback, let alone an 18-year-old freshman, to do everything for an offense. Ryan, they actually got less than nothing. They, they were in the negative. Yeah. It, it blew my mind. They finished with negative five rushing yards. I don't remember that with USC football. Just tell back you. I, I, big negative five rushing yards. It's got real life. So, that I mean, I could look at that number all day. We could probably record uh, like a whole catalog of podcasts just off around those numbers. And JT took three sacks, not ten, or, or not even the eight that Donald had in Cotton Bowl. And when you take those out of the equation, then USC had 21 rushing yards, which is not good for 13 carries. Which is less than the 23 that Stephen Carr had on one carry. Yeah, you already kind of took it from me. Basically, 13 carries for 21 yards. You remove the 23-yard touchdown from the equation. You got 12 carries for negative two yards. I mean, they, they had that one positive play, and then they had the three-yard touchdown run by Vivai, which also, uh, you know, and he was on the three, so that's all he has to accomplish on that play. He did it. So they had two good runs on the night. And I don't know what's more damning, that it was just those two and the total yardage, or the fact that they only ran the ball 13 times. That's weird, because you have 13 run plays, and then JT had 48 pass attempts. Add the three sacks, that's 51 pass plays. 51 to 13, that's actually a 4 to 1 ratio of pass plays to run play. They, they really are putting everything on him. They're asking him to do more than, or at least equal to what they were asking of, of Sam Darnold. They're, you know, Heisman contending two years starting quarterback last year, who's now starting in the NFL. That's what they just put upon their 18-year-old true freshman quarterback. Yeah, and, you know, we saw early in the game we saw him make great passes. We saw him maybe take a few more chances than he needs to. And I, and I think one thing I've diagnosed with JT is that he's so confident in his ability to put the ball right where it needs to be that he doesn't hesitate to attack double coverage or super tight coverage. And that's not always a great thing. The first first down they made last night on third down, he put the pass right over the defender in the only spot it could be for that play to be made. But it was a risky throw. That one worked. The throw later to St. Brown that got picked off didn't work. So I I think he's going to have to recalibrate a little bit on how many chances he takes. But I'm still really impressed with the talent that's there, Uh, the moxie he has, that, that he does have that confidence. You just can't ask him to do everything. So he he is not the problem. He's not the problem with this offense. There are so many problems 
JT Daniels is not the problem with USC right now. No, I think he's going to be part of the solution. Um, I think even very soon. And I mentioned Amon Ra being the best player and by far the best player in offense. Who's second? Uh, to me, JT at times he's been that guy. I know it's been uneven, but I don't know who's second. I don't. I don't have another name right now. I I think about their quarterback, and he has to be better. Uh, there are things that right now that are sloppy, not just decision making, but I think uh, you know, he's just really kind of throwing off his back foot a lot, and and therefore um, missing missing girls that he could make. It's something that we did see in training camp. I, I remember Clay pointing it out, where he might have his pinpoint accuracy on certain downfield throws. He really likes to go over the middle on those throws, like the one that he hit uh, Vales Jones. Yeah, that's just a brilliant throw. That's a throw that Darnold doesn't even make. He didn't really try to make it. He, he wasn't good at doing that. And JT is excellent. But there are too many throws that are intermediate that uh, I, I feel like, it, especially with, with Vaughn's and Pittman, where it's just out of the reach and it's too high or too wide. And th those, guys are, those guys are big guys. They're long. So if it's out of their reach, then it, it's really on the quarterback. And, and those are things that I really do anticipate are going to be cleaned up in the near future. Well, a point you made earlier before we started taping was that if he was operating in a functioning offense and wasn't, you know, on an island having to do everything, he'd probably be standing out right now and people would be going, wow, this guy's really good for as a freshman. But it gets watered down when he's doing everything and as the game goes on it becomes less and less effective and you're forcing things and you're, you're trying to make up for what has been another collective futility from the offense well, yeah he's a casualty of USC being one and two there's really no way around that I didn't expect it to come down on him given that he is a freshman starting quarterback And uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't really think about him that much when when I'm trying to diagnose what the issues are. I, I think about who's leading him and who's coaching him. That, that's where I go, and, and not to just absolve him. Um, I do think that the onus is on the players and the coaches, but. Just still a lot of perplexing decisions being made throughout the game, uh, and when you when you have an 11 point lead, then management comes into play. There are other games where, you know, if you're like the Notre Dame game, I think of last year, where they were just outclassed and unprepared, and they were depleted. There was a lot of injuries. That was a humiliating defeat. But 
it was just so overwhelming for USC that uh, you don't even really get into like the the details of the game in, in a loss like that. But in this one, this was a winnable game. You, you consider the opponent, Texas, is the first unranked team that Clay has lost to. I, I, he, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he doesn't lose these games. And that's why I predicted USC would win. Because everything seems to follow, there, there seems to be a pattern with everything that's happened with him. Which includes, you know, different quarterbacks even. And a couple different coaches. And, you know, him being an interim coach. And still, there's been a pattern. And this, this kind of broke that. So let's get into to where they go from here, and I want you to expound on the column you wrote today. But my first thought, you know, hearing the way everyone's reacting to this loss, uh, the frustration that's already set in on this season, is it too late? Is is it too late for Clay Helton to win back this fan base or the large segments that he seems to have lost at this point? Uh, it's a good question. I don't know that we have an answer. Here's where I stand. I think in the immediate aftermath of a game like that, everyone's feeling the emotion and the gravity of the loss. And we, we kind of talked about that before the game, that it would be, it would you'd feel a lot coming out of it, you know, Wherever you, wherever you, whether you're on the team or you're covering the team, you're just you're gonna have a lot of thoughts about it and feelings about it. And uh, you know, even if they just won, even if they won by a point, uh, for USC would be a big victory just to go home as a winner. And if they lost by a point, then it could feel devastating. But. No one saw a 23-point loss coming. And that speaks to there being deep-rooted issues. Beyond just like, oh, like they, they ran a stupid play here on fourth and short. Right? Like, <laughs> Which they, they, they did. <laughs> right, they did. But, but that just seems irrelevant right now, is what I'm saying. So, as I try to pull myself out of that bubble as I did uh, this morning I thought about going into the year how my expectations for the team were that you know really in the summer let's say before I I even saw JT play I think things did gradually change for me as I watched him in the summer but going into the summer coming out of spring I personally had both the Stanford and Texas games pegged as a loss. That's before I knew anything about Texas this fall. You know, it's only after the fact where they were so unremarkable in their first two games that I was heavily swayed by that. And 
you know, even after the Stanford loss, I still felt like USC will win this game. And anybody who asks me, even though I, I found I find USC to be unpredictable, Clay just you can look at the, the pattern like I just mentioned, and he wins this game. He he just wins this game. Unless Texas runs the table here and they end up like a 10-11 win team, then this loss would fit in with the other road losses that he has against really good teams. In fact, every uh, every prior loss came to a team that uh, not only had been ranked, but had won at least nine games in that season. I don't think Texas will win nine games. They're all right. I mean, it's, it's probably a big for them, and, and you know, can be something to build off of for them in general. I, I don't know. They could get beat next week. Right? I mean, they probably will. They're playing TCU, but uh, at the same time, I, I don't know that they're a nine-win team. Uh, but more importantly, looking at USC. So I thought that they could go one and two, given the schedule, the the tough back-to-back row games, all, all the things that they had to replace beyond Arnold. Even you, know, you look at Rojo and Deontay Burnett and Rasheem Green, Ichinu Olosu, even Chris Hawkins. I, I just thought that there was a lot. A lot of veteran leadership, a lot of really good players. You got some NFL guys there. That, that just—I mean, all those guys got drafted. The 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 four that got drafted all got drafted in J one or J two. So even though there wasn't a plethora of NFL talent. Coming out of that that last class, it was good talent. The, the, the ones that did leave. So I, I thought they could go one and two, and I don't think anybody's high on the Pac-12 right now. And it made sense that they could perform well in the Pac-12 and end up around eight and four. I know 8-4 never really is exciting. Nobody wants to go back to the Holiday Bowl. I don't. But I just thought that might be where they're at. And I didn't see an 8-4 season as an indictment on Clay Hilton. I, I know that I'm not... I'm not maybe in the majority in thinking that way. It feels like people expect more pretty much every year and that they wouldn't forgive 8-4. They might be able to get over it, but they would have a hard time with it. But that that's where I stood on this season. And there were definitely foreboding signs in that season opener, which we covered, but I thought that JT was so promising and I put so much weight into quarterback play that's probably a weakness of mine, that I figured 
they're actually going to be pretty good. And, you know, it was only it was less than two weeks ago that I was saying I think they can win any game, not that they'll win every game. And, you know, they really... They, they were never in position to, to beat Stanford. And, and in this game, like, they did have a 14-3 lead. It was a winnable game. I think you could define it that way. But when you get blown out by 23 and you get shut out for three quarters and you're outscored 34 nothing, then it, you know, no one needs to go through the woulda, coulda, shoulda. They, they just got beat. They, they were embarrassed. Um, it was the second worst USC loss that I can remember watching in person. I might have, I probably saw something during the Hackett era when I was younger and I'm not remembering it well enough. But, you know, Carol had two really bad losses and I wasn't present for either one. I watched him, I just wasn't there. And then I wasn't present for the couple that Kiffin had in terms of marching defeat. I was there for Sark, but he didn't have this, believe it or not. He had those losses where they played down to their opponent and they were their favorite, even a double-digit favorite at home, and they would lose. He would do that. Clay doesn't do that. But uh, he, he, he wasn't blown out to this proportion. And, uh, and now Clay has a lot. This has actually been a common theme for Clay. And I've been there for basically all of it. Uh, I did not attend last year's Notre Dame game. So that one I, I know would beat this. And I, I was there for Alabama. So for me, just in person, it, it, it's right, it's next behind Alabama. But I, I never saw it coming. So in some ways, it, it seems even more dubious. So, so let me go back to, to the question, though. Where does this season go from here? And where does the trajectory of this program under this coaching staff go from here? What, what can be salvaged this year still? What's the best case scenario? And what is a likely scenario? Best case, they went out. That might sound crazy. Maybe it is. But I don't see a lot of teams on their schedule that we know right now are significantly better than USC. A lot of the road games, maybe all of them will be hard. Other than UCLA. Notre Dame will probably be hard. Even though it hasn't been at Coliseum in the recent past. But I think that's the best case scenario. At least that's how I see it as of right now, even after this loss. But the more realistic one would be back to what I was saying, 84, right around there, a give or take, a, a, a win. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm of the same mindset that this is a more talented roster than most of the ones are gonna face. And because of that, that's informed and dictated my expectations for these games, my predictions that have been way off. 
and I just don't know how much more benefit of the doubt or, or, or benefit based on strength of roster I can keep giving and making assumptions about what's going to happen. There's a lot that needs to, be, needs to be fixed, and I'm not sure how quickly this can just turn on its head and, and change for the better across the board. So I, while I agree that they probably are more talented than most every other team on the roster uh, on the schedule, maybe except for Notre Dame, I don't know that that is going to necessarily dictate how those games play out because this team is lost right now. They're just they're lost. Yeah. I just remember that they play at Oregon State too, <laughs> so I want to make sure that I, I'm not giving uh, them the edge over USC. They have a couple gimmies on the road as well, but Arizona, I don't know if that will be hard or not. I, I have no idea, and it's only a couple weeks away. I would expect Utah to be hard, and that's really it. They only have four road games left now, but a couple home games will be hard. And, and they really, not many had been hard in the last couple of years, and now I think a couple of them will be. I, they're, they're hard to, to say which ones. Everybody wants me to, to, to predict, like, where's that loss. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you they're going to lose to Cal at home or lose to Colorado at home or ASU. But the way they're playing, they could. They, they play differently at home. So I'm going to probably pick them to win all those games, but right now, it's so volatile, and, and that's what confused me the most. In fact, that's what I wrote about last, uh, last night, was that there is hard evidence that they have a number of good players in the team, not based on hype or recruiting rankings based on actual production, based on film we've seen it look at the team over the past 12 months and while as a team they have been disjointed a lot there have been a lot of individual performances that are very encouraging uh, both on offense and on defense and yet, they're not able to do that on a regular basis. I know that not every player is going to play well in every game, but it seems like hardly anyone is playing well consistently. I think that's coaching. Yeah, and I think everyone would agree that Clay Helton is about as nice a guy as, as you'll ever meet a guy that anyone would want to see do well and it is still early in the season I just know that when things go so far askew as they have these last couple weeks it's really hard to turn the ship back around and so I, I'm, I'm not willing to say anything conclusive as to what's going to happen or what this team can or can't do but it's really hard to redirect a season when negativity rains down as much as it has last week, but even more so this week. Because there was an opportunity, as we discussed, for a win this week to make you know the Stanford thing put that in a different perspective. Oh, lost to a top 10 team on the road early in the season. They recovered. Uh, when you instead just 
compound that, then it's it's just really it's it's really hard to paint an overly optimistic outlook for the season at this point. But but you're right, there are a lot of winnable games left. Things can change. It's just where's it comes down to where's your confidence level in this coaching staff making the adjustments, the corrections, getting the mentality of this team back on track in very short order. Because you can't have another dud this week. You have to come back and win this game if you're going to have any chance of putting this thing back on a better track. And it's a it's a short week. How do you fix all this in, in five days? Yeah, I mean they have to win, but that's not even half of it. They have to win a lot. This upcoming Friday matchup with Wazoo is not going to win over anyone just winning that game or even winning in convincing fashion. You, you can't lose it, of course, but winning it doesn't really matter that much either, in a sense. Meaning they have to win that game and many, many more. I mean, the Texas loss, I think, provided a lot of fuel for Helton's haters. And they're out there, and they've been out there, and some people have kind of been on that corner from day one, and they never left, even after the Rose Bowl. Now, I think he he probably had swung the pendulum quite a bit after that run, and the fact that he had Darnold coming back helped a lot. People weren't focused on what life would be like without him, and and where he would be without him because he had him still. That, that conversation grew louder during last season when, you know, I knew that he was leaving. I knew Darnold was leaving. And it was inevitable that he would be gone even if it wasn't after last season. He wasn't going to be there forever. And you knew that he had had a disproportionate contribution to the team's success. So now all eyes are on Clay. This has been a nightmare scenario, a nightmare opening to the year. I think there are there there is a large contingency that probably he can't win over unless he won a national title which is not happening this year so it'll take time for him if he has it to even get to that point with them I think that he's losing people in droves right now I, I guess I'm not thinking about that as much because I don't know how much that matters to the powers that be at USC. I know it does matter, but I don't know how much. It's pretty hard to read, in fact. I feel like it's more bottom line in terms of winning. Even if the perception's bad. To me, the perception has been bad throughout the majority of his time. It wasn't that good when he got the job. Not for the rabid fan base. The casual fan was probably very agreeable to the hire. But those that have been following the program for a long time 
while they liked Clay at the time, and I imagine they still do, uh, maybe beyond being a football coach, they probably never really liked him to, or liked the idea of him being the head coach. So, bottom line, they're going to have to win a lot more. And in order to do that, I think we're going to have to see fundamental changes made by both Clay and his staff. I think that's what I was alluding to at the top of the show, that if they don't change, then the situation won't, and then there will be a change. But can they change? I don't know if they can. That's the other issue. I don't know that they've been much different the whole time. I think that you know, they. I think they had a quarterback that made everybody look good, and they don't have that guy anymore. I don't know how much they can grow the the staff. How much that staff can grow in the course of a couple months, or how much they can change in the course of a, of a week or two. I mean, this, this offensive line is maybe an even worse issue than we initially feared when we saw some uneven play in the opener when we saw last week. I, I just, I really worry about the potential for that unit to overhaul itself. And if it doesn't, then you're going to be stuck in the same cycle of the running game not working and them reflexively piling on JT and just going with this the same loop of, of ineffective uh, offense that we've seen now for the last two weeks. So in the short term, I don't know how much can change. I guess it's my biggest concern for this team moving forward. Yeah, that's a good point. The offensive line was something that I'm not sure I really was bullish on it, but I know that I inferred that I think it could be better than a year ago. I did believe that. I wasn't trying to drink the Kool-Aid. I wasn't trying to sell hype. I thought returning four starters and having three seniors in that group, having less turnover than they had in other years, having the same position coach for the last two plus years would all kind of add up into improvement. Not that it would be great or dominant, but I thought it could be good. It's been the worst unit on the team, and it's been the worst that I've seen from a USC offensive line since I can remember. That wasn't something I probably followed real closely as a teenager and and before that but just between the Carroll era to now you know even even with Kiffin I don't remember the the offensive line being as bad and and, you know the optimist 
a week ago would have said, as I did, as we pointed to, as Toshbar did, that you know what, actually they're they're doing pretty good in the run blocking. The, the pass protection's a, a total mess, but but they're creating holes for the running backs. And then you come out against a team that is not a ferocious defensive front, and you just get totally shut down. That takes away even the offset optimism of, of one part of it kind of working. Nothing worked yesterday. And that's that's their biggest obstacle in my eyes at this point. And that's coaching. Texas did this a year ago. They, they had basically the same blueprint where they fully committed to taking away the run. And looking back at the numbers, and Rojo didn't do much. And, and neither did Carr. But Darnold threw for 400 yards. And some of that was heroics, but quite a bit of it too was that's what the defense is giving USC. And, and that's why I think we saw so many passes on Saturday night. Not just because they were playing from behind, because they were not playing from behind the entire game. They, the, the game really didn't get out of hand until the, the end of the third quarter. The block field goal. Yeah, it, the game was really competitive for a while. It, it was sloppy, but it was a good game for a good two and a half quarters. And yet, USC couldn't run the ball and didn't commit to running the ball. It's impossible to win like that. It's, it's unsustainable. Even if you eke out a victory with the lopsided numbers, you're not going to be a winning team playing that way. And it just seems like it's progressively getting worse. You know, USC had moments like that, or had games like that last year, but just even going from like the Cotton Bowl, it, that, that game was like this. And then Stanford was, was like this. And now Texas, that's three out of four. Go through the last four games, three of them have been really lopsided, and in all three, they couldn't run the ball at all. So, you know, it's just to tie a bow on this whole thing and, and wrap this up. Let's go back to Sedware's comments about practice. And it was the most... We talking about practice, man. Yeah, it was... The we talking about practice. <laughs> Not the game. Not the game. What are we talking about? Not the game. We talking about practice. Practice. It was the most candid and revealing comment that came out of last night. It was the most uh, accountable comment that came out of last night where he said, we've got to practice better, period. And, and you follow up and ask him, did you feel it was the same way last week? He goes, yeah, honestly, I did. Uh, I, I just felt we were slow. We were lazy in practice. And, you know, we're aware that that's a point of contention for many fans, the way they structure their practice. That was not Ware's point. He, he said, I don't have a problem with the routine. It's, it's the way that we're approaching it. It's, it's on the players. It's about being attentive every moment. And he indirectly, but kind of directly, also called out the fact that there's a vacuum of leadership on the offense. He goes, the, the defense does their thing. They have their leaders. We need leaders on offense. And that was a... That's what you get with a freshman quarterback. Yeah, because because normally everything revolves around the quarterback, emanates from the quarterback. But it was a very honest and revealing comment, and I I think that's that's a big explanation for where things are at right now. If if one of the prominent players says, 
tells the media, I don't think that we're practicing well or hard or that guys are focused in and that we need someone to be on them and to tell them, hey, lock in, do this, then that helps explain a lot to me. Yeah, I, I look at coaching for that too because it's circumstantial, but the oldest receiver is Michael Pittman, who is a really a first-time, full-time starter. And Cedric Ware is a first-time starter, and he's not even really the, the clear alpha dog among the running backs. He's a senior, but he hasn't been in that position yeah. on the field. You have the freshman quarterback. The tight ends are quiet in terms of their their role. So that's not where you're going to, I think, generate a lot of leadership. The offensive line, that would be nice. I think that's a place that he can come from and needs to come from. But beyond that, I, I think that falls in the hands of Helton and Key Martin and Neil Callaway. Those are the vets. This is their team. I mean, <laughs> there, there's no one else. Yeah. It, it, it has to be them. But I, I did think about that even coming into the year. I remember Pac-12 Media Day when we were kind of guessing who would be pre uh, present for that, for USC. And typically they go one offense, one defense. You kind of figured it'd be Cam. It was Cam again for the second year in a row. But rather than send an offensive player, and there wasn't an obvious pick, it could have been Killa Lobendon. But they sent Porter Gustin, which I enjoyed. Always love talking to Porter, but it's true. There, I think they don't have a lot of leadership on offense. I think they they needed it last year as well. I think actually that, that was a problem that they were able to, they were able they were able to overcome with their talent, but but not fully. You know, they, they did kind of fold in a couple of those big games and. You know, they're relying a lot on Darnold, who is only 20 years old. And he wasn't able to carry all that weight alone. It, it, it'll be an interesting week. It's, it's now a point where we're going to be scrutinizing everything. We're going to be watching practice with maybe an even more heightened uh, lens just to kind of see, you know, what we can perceive from the way it's going and how players are interacting, etc. Uh, the offensive line may be down the guy. We're going to find out more about Voorhees tonight. He had the injury. Uh, we weren't told the full severity. Clay said it was an MCL, but didn't say if it was a tear or if it was a strain, what it was. So that unit could be even more hampered. And uh, this is going to be a very telling week in general for this program. It, it, any closing notes you want to hit on before we uh, sign off? Yeah, I had a question for you. You've seen a lot of football, you've covered a lot of teams, but I don't know all the access that you've been granted at your previous stops. What have you made of the way that they practice, you know, from the, the month and a half that you've been able to observe firsthand? 
Yeah, it, it definitely has not struck me as overly competitive or, or overly ten, or, uh, intense. And it's, it's hard not to come away with that impression. Now, when I covered the, the Gators the last two years in Florida, they gave us no access, so we really saw nothing. So, uh, you know, I don't have a great point of reference from the last couple of years to compare, you know, the entirety of practice. But I don't stand on that sideline and and feel like it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a super intensive exhibition. Yeah. And... and the point was made last night. They spend so much time on special teams. So much. I've never seen a team spend more time on special teams. Hashtag Baxter doing work. <laughs> and and the questions that last night were fair. That you're spending this much time on it. How is it not better? I mean, more to the point, how is it such a pronounced problem? Abomination. So um, I, I'm not saying that that. There is a. There's only one way to run practice effectively. Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm going to give you another example. This is not an apples to apples comparison. Uh, I covered an FCS program, Coastal Carolina, for a while, and they had a very interesting head coach who was actually the former CEO of TD Ameritrade. Got back into coaching. Every national outlet wrote a story about him. Very unique story, and he saw things differently. and And he was a proponent of not tackling in practice, and he had his reasons. And they, they were a, a number one ranked team in the country in the FCS level it worked for them at that level so I'm not saying that you can only do things one way and it can only work one way but if you ask me when I stand on the sideline what's my takeaway from those practices they're they seem relaxed yeah and I just feel like it's getting worse because I've been there for a while and sometimes you know it, it, it gives me a lot of perspective but then sometimes I don't have much to, to compare to, but even in the time that Helkin has been a coach from when he took over as the interim in the middle of the 2015 season, I feel like they've really scaled back. And I brought that up recently and there was some pushback on the message board and I was not trying to attack Helkin and, uh, and his approach. I really wasn't. But I found it curious how lax things felt. And I wondered aloud if having another day in full pads would foster that competitiveness and that intensity and, uh, and physicality that seems to be lacking both in practice and more importantly in games. Uh, the, the week of Stanford, I thought was a really poor week of practice. And I didn't really say anything. I kind of kept it to myself. But I did believe that. And, and that's why I picked Stanford. Going into the week, I was kind of wavering. And by the end of the week, I was pretty confident that after watching that, they're not winning this game. They, you can't play Stanford with a, a week of practice like that. Now, this past week versus Texas, I was not present at practice. And so I didn't know. It, you know, and I, I, that's why I'm going to defend my prediction, though. But uh, I didn't know how they looked. But it was interesting to hear Akis Ware, who's been there for 
four years now, call it out. And kind of unsolicited. We weren't really asking him to talk about practice. We followed up about it, but he he really went there and, and hammered it home and said that we got to practice better, we got to practice harder. He just seemed completely dissatisfied. And then uh, when, you know, first he brought up the week of, of Texas and felt like, as you mentioned, that it was kind of lazy. And then I asked him, did you feel like that the week before? And I, and I did not lead him. I just put it out there. Did you? Knowing that I, it was kind of burning inside. I'm, I'm like, I, I know it was, but you know, you're on the team. Your, your opinion matters way more. Did you think so? And I didn't know what he would say. I, in fact, I thought he might not want to, you know, kind of put, double down. Yeah, double down and, and and say, yeah, two out of three weeks we stuck in practice, but he did. Another observation that I should have mentioned, the one thing that strikes me about their practices more than anything, more than the physicality, is just how many guys are standing around at times. I don't think it's it's a max efficiency where everyone's doing something constantly. There's a lot of downtime for a lot of guys. When they go to the special teams drills, there's a lot of downtime for a lot of guys. When the first team defense or offense is in, the other guys are standing there watching for the most part. Yeah. And you know, again, this is an apples to oranges comparison, but the one thing when I covered Coastal Carolina and I was watching every day of practice for a team that was the top of their classification, they made sure that everyone was involved and active at all times. Engaged. So uh, the, the second team was not standing watching the first team. They were doing their own thing. Uh, it was constantly moving. I think that's maybe the one thing that gives me that vibe of it being relaxed is that these guys have a considerable amount of downtime during the practice with them. Yeah, no, that, that actually reminds me of a, a point that I wanted to make that we can close out on is that wherever you stand on tackling or pads, whatever, that, that's fine. Like they, they, they might do enough of it. But I wish more of you could see what they're doing because I think you'd agree that it's kind of flat. And that had me thinking about everything's so routine for them. It, I mean, I feel like every day is such a routine for them that I wonder if when they get to the Coliseum, because it just is so comfortable for them, it's home. That it's part of their routine, and and therefore they perform pretty well. More often than not, they perform really well, actually, because it's part of the routine. It's comfortable. But the moment they go on the road, which I, I know, I realize they play half their games away from the Coliseum and half there. But anytime you leave. Southern California, right? You're breaking that routine. The routine is wildly different uh, in terms of just having to travel and where they're staying and and the whole process around the game. And I wonder if 
it's too disruptive for them to execute when they're not able to do it in the most comfortable setting. And that might sound pretty weak. I'm not justifying that or justifying the losses for this. I think it might be contributing to it. And therefore, I believe they need to shake things up. That's really my conclusion here. It's the bottom line. I mean, clearly something has to change. You don't just keep going on the same way you're doing things and getting the results you're getting. Something has to change. There will be a lot to observe and take in this week, both in practice and in the game. It's it's a really interesting week for this program. And we'll be back to you a couple times with some more podcasts and more thoughts. Uh, probably won't say any more about this Texas game. But we had a, a ton of content on the site tonight, last night, today, uh, trojansports.com. And, again, we're going to keep hammering it if you're not – Subscribed. If you're not coming, uh, now's the time to give it a chance because you can do it for free. We have the free promo through the end of October, promo code USC60. You sign up. You don't pay anything for the next month and a half. You can see everything we're doing. And our goal is that you're going to like it and you're going to stay. But at least give yourself the chance to see what we're doing and see if it's for you. Yeah, the changes have been for the good. And with that, we bid you adieu.